Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've received your, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Yeah, before we begin, I just thought I'd you know, take a moment to say a thank you for having us here in the last 10 weeks. It's been really fun. I've learned a lot. A special thanks to Clinton. I don't think he's here. Here, oh, yes, there he is. He's been sort of uh, helping me think through my sermons and uh, go through them, reflect on them, what strengths, weaknesses, and sort of help me think about that. So it was really good. Thank you to Monique, who's not here, uh, for uh, being very patient with me when I was always late and getting in my songs and bits and pieces. But thanks to the rest of you for, yeah, really making us feel at home, even though it's such a short time. So I've really enjoyed our time that we've been able to go through Philippians together as we thought about this uh, book. I thought four sermons would probably almost do it, and was pretty wrong. Probably needed about eight or nine. So we've, we've had a pretty good chance to sort of look at some of the big themes, uh, 
yeah, tackle some of the interesting chapters, but there's so much we've left out. So I encourage you to go back and look at what we've missed and think about that for yourself. Uh, so as we come to God's Word, let's just uh, pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word, and we thank you for this letter that was written so many thousands of years ago. Lord, it is still relevant, it is still uh, convicting, it is still useful for your people today. Lord, we pray that we would therefore uh, pay attention, we would hear what your Word has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our text today is going to be, uh, not the whole chapter, that would be a bit too much, uh, it's going to be Philippians 4, verse 4 to 9. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open if you've got them with you. And as a, as a boy, I was always really excited by the idea of castles. Now, it wasn't the idea of uh, fancy dress or um, dancers or princesses, which got, really got me exciting, so much as the idea of fighting. You know, I could almost imagine myself storming a castle or being involved in a famous siege where a castle was attacked and through the efforts of the valiant knights, myself included, uh, we held out and defeated the enemy outside our gates. Now, I hope I'm not the only person who feels or have ever daydreamed about this because that would probably make me a little bit weird. Uh, but, but why this talk of castles? Well, in a way, our hearts are like castles. They can be attacked, they can be captured, or they can be defended. Many people's hearts uh, in our world today are attacked by the circumstances of the world, and they're defeated by them. And they live lives which are forever lived in the shadow of what has happened to them. Other people's lives are captured by sin and become more like a dungeon than a castle, as they can't break free from the sin controlling their lives. As Christians, we're not immune to our hearts being attacked by the frustrations and difficulties of a life lived in a world that is full of pain and hurt. So this morning, we're going to think about what it is that attacks our hearts and how we are to defend against this that we can remain strong in our faith. And there are the three aspects which we're going to think about in our defense of our hearts. And the first one is besieged hearts. Uh, so a castle is normally built to keep people out and protect those on the inside. And as Paul brings this letter to a close, he wants to stress three attitudes which believers are to keep and protect in the castle of their hearts. And these hard attitudes, which should characterize all Christian hearts, are joyfulness, gentleness, and trustfulness. So we're going to look really briefly at each three of these and just to see what they are, and we're going to think about how our world and how life challenges these things for us. So we see joyfulness in verse 4 where we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so far in Philippians, we've seen that as believers we are saints and we're also citizens of heaven. And both of these point to the fact that our hope, our goals, our fulfillment isn't in the things of this earth but in the age to come. And see, this is what biblical joy is all about. See, biblical joy is connected to our future hope and security in Jesus, knowing that our best life isn't now, but it's later, once Jesus has returned. This means that we look beyond the here and the now, so that when difficulties come our way or tragedies strike, we might be sad and for a time downcast, but eventually we can return to a joyful spirit as we realize that our hope isn't here and now. So true Christian joy, then, is not merely a passing feeling or a mood. It's an active spiritual state of love, happiness, and fulfillment based on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So that's joy. And the next one we see, the next hard attitude is in verse 5, where it says, let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. Now another word for reasonableness is gentleness. And so we live in a, a sort of a dog-eat-dog world, where if you don't bully your way to the top, you'll probably become the one who's bullied and the victim. Yet as Christians, this is not what we're called to be. We are not to be ruthless consumers of resources and people. Instead, we're called to be people of gentleness, people who are characterized not by the tendency to violence, but rather by the desire to resolve a conflict peacefully. People who don't selfishly seek their own goals, regardless of who they have to stand on, but care about those suffering and downtrodden. Gentleness, then, is an attitude of care and concern in our approach to others, seeking peace uh, wherever possible while still tackling uh, issues head-on. It's not about sweeping things under the carpet. Gentleness is not pretending there are no issues, but rather, how do we approach people and dealing with them? So that's the second hard attitude, is gentleness. And the third one we see is in verse 6, where we read, do not be anxious about anything. Now, so Paul gives this next heart attitude in the negative, what we're not to do. We're not to be anxious. So if we were to flip that and put that in the positive, our third heart attitude is trusting, trusting in God. And this is because at the core, anxiety is a lack of trust in God for our future. Anxiety leads us to start imagining all kinds of scenarios where things could go wrong. And often our imagination, we actually begin presuming they will go wrong. And what if I lose my job? What if my relationship fails? What if I let my children do something fun and something bad happens? What if? What if? What if? And the problem with this kind of thinking is that if we, we start to think that our future relies on us and our ability to control it. And we begin to lose trust in God. So not being anxious then is about trusting God for our future. Yes, bad things may happen to us as Christians. But even then, we should look expectingly to God to resolve and secure our future. Now, I do want to be careful here. There is a sinful anxiety, and there are also anxiety disorders where people need help from doctors. So if that's you, then please keep seeing your doctor. They are a gift from God. Now, I'd hate for this sermon to give you anxiety about having anxiety. But at the same time, don't see doctors as your saviour. I encourage you to keep God at the forefront of whatever treatment it is that you need. Keep trusting in him as you work through this. So these are the three heart attitudes that Paul is calling for us to have. To be joyful, gentle, trusting. How are you doing in these things? I wonder which one of these you struggle with the most. As I, as I look at these three things, I, I think it would be, be amazing to be a perfectly joyful, gentle, trusting Christian all the time, wouldn't it? But boy, I'm a long way off of that. So is Paul trying to guilt trip us then? Now, are these things actually attainable? Why did he feel the need to sort of finish the letter on these things? Well, Paul knows the tendency of human hearts to struggle in these areas. And he knows that we live in a world which is besieging our hearts on all sides, like a castle under attack. 
You see, a world which threatens us in the areas of joy, gentleness, and trust. And it seems that everything conspires to take them from us. And if you go and read the news, you'll see there's another war. Another atrocious crime has happened. Another misstep by those in leadership. It is hard not to become cynical rather than joyful as we look at the world and the sin in it. This was certainly a struggle that I had in the police. I mean, there's little joy to be found in dealing with hopelessly violent domestic relationships that I knew I'd return to again. Or criminals with a rap sheet a mile long that the law just seems powerless to deal with. And I can imagine that many of you here have experienced things which, far from bringing joy, have led to frustration and sorrow in your life. And sometimes joy seems forever out of reach. You know, a nice dream, but is it really attainable? And as for gentleness, it flees quickly when we get ripped off in a business deal or we're victimized by people, doesn't it? I mean, we recently brought a tent off Facebook, which was supposedly in perfect condition. When I opened it up to check it, all the tent poles were damaged or broken. I didn't have particularly gentle thoughts at that point in time. So for some of us, anger is a real struggle, even as believers. Yes, we can push it down, we can bottle it up, but all it takes is for something to tip us over the edge and it explodes out again. We might blame the event or or others around us, but we know that really the anger comes from our own heart. So perhaps some of you here have been at the receiving end of this anger and know all too well the pain that anger can cause. Sometimes Christian gentleness feels uh, too far off in a world where anger is the easier option, doesn't it? And as for anxiety, well, anxiety levels uh, rise as the eco- economy wobbles and our social s- status fluctuates. Stats on anxiety in Australia show that it's increased by nearly 50% over the last 15 years, which uh, is interestingly about the same time smartphones started turning up. Perhaps it's a coincidence, perhaps not. But with the rise of social media, we seem to be ever more anxious as the pressures of this come down on us and we feel the need to fit in or be passed by. This is made all the worse by cancel culture, which punishes those who won't fit in. Now, this pressure isn't just for the young and social media users either. You see, our modern society has made us so connected, whether in work, pleasure or entertainment, that it's very hard to unplug and have a moment to ourselves. There always seems to be one more task we can do, one more email, one more uh, show to watch, one more click. So no wonder anxiety is on the rise. So we live then in a world which wants to lower our eyes from our glorious future and focus instead on the issues, the worries, the concerns of what's right in front of us. As Christians, we face the same pressures as everybody else. Our money never seems to go far enough. Our relationships are hard work. The effects of sin in our life always complicates things. Losing a loved one is devastating. And ill health and death always seem just around the corner. In fact, it is far more natural and I think easier to be cynical, bitter and anxious than joyful, gentle and trusting, isn't it? So how can we live in a world besieging our hearts? Can we as Christians really be joyful, gentle, and trusting when sometimes we just want to crawl up in a ball and cry in the corner? Well, Paul tells us that there is a way for us to live. 
out these heart attitudes, and that way is for our hearts to be guarded. But guarded by what? But guarded by whom? We're going to think about that in our, our second point then. We're going to think about guarded hearts. So when a castle is besieged, you know, armies surround it and attacking it, a common practice was for the besieged to send out a message asking for help from their allies. And if the, uh, the friends could raise an army quick enough, the enemy would be forced off and the city would be saved. And Paul sort of has a similar encouragement to Christians. As the pressures of life threaten to take away our joy and give us anxiety, the answer, according to verse 6, is to cry out to God, come to him in prayer and supplication. Now, prayer is not some magic spell. You don't just sort of pray the right words and boom, all your dreams are answered. No, prayer is effective because of who it's to and who we are to him. Prayer is effective because it's to the God of this world, the God of this universe, who is all-powerful and sovereign. And this awesome, holy, all-powerful God loves his children. He loves you. He loves me. Prayer, then, is really about relationship, a relationship between God and his children. So it's good to see it this way because you know, many attempted to sort of see prayer as a get-out-of-jail-free card or a last resort. You know, only talk to God when they're in trouble. And I think this is why Paul tells us in verse 6 to pray with supplications and thanksgiving. You see, we're to pray in the good times as well as the difficult times. We don't just you know, talk to your spouse when you're having issues. I think it's advisable to communicate throughout all your life if you want to have a happy relationship. So I'm not sure where you are this morning, whether your joy is under attack by your per- because of your personal circumstances, are hard, or your financial problems or health issues. I don't know if you're struggling with anxiety about the future or struggle with just trusting God in general, or whether you find responding gently in a world of violence difficult. But let me encourage any who are struggling with these things to pray. Pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord when he's blessing you and pray when times are hard and joy seems out of reach. And the wonder is, according to verse 7, God will answer. God will hear you. Now it is important to see what Paul doesn't say about God here. He doesn't say God will answer by topping up your bank account. Be nice. He doesn't say God will cure your ill health. He doesn't say God will convert your family members. He may, he can, he does, but he may not. And this isn't what Paul focuses on. He goes deeper. He goes to our hearts and their protection. You see, there is something deeper and more enduring than our outward circumstances. And these are always changing, aren't they? What we need if we grow in joy and gentleness and trust is not change circumstances so much as the peace of God in our hearts. A peace that comes from knowing that because of Jesus, our future beyond the difficulties of here and now are secure because we've been brought into a loving relationship with God. In fact, without this peace of God, having joy, gentleness and trust is actually impossible. And this is a peace that is far deeper than any the peace the world knows. The world offers us peace in in different ways. 
You know, many find peace in alcohol or drugs. Others in chasing adventure or sex. Some find it in ver- um, peace in various forms of yoga or meditation, you know, finding the inner self. Some perhaps in rising to the top or of their field or through achieving wealth. Yet in the end, all these things, they fail. I mean, all you have to do is go to a retirement home and talk to some of the older non-Christians there, and they will tell you that these things don't last. That's quite sad, actually. You see, these things, they may last for a time, but in the end, they all let you down. So what we need then is a lasting peace which can guard our hearts against cynicism, bitterness, and anxiety. This idea of of guarding hearts is is pulled by Paul from the imagery of a Roman garrison occupying a fort. As as the greatest military force on the planet at the time, a a fort occupied and garrisoned by a Roman legion was was practically impregnable. Yeah, sure, you could attack it, but it would be impossible to capture it. And this imagery applies to our hearts. You see, if the peace of God is guarding our hearts in Jesus, then there is nothing in this world that can capture our hearts. It might attack it. It might lay siege. But in the end, there is no power which can overcome the peace of God. The peace of knowing that our sins are dealt with and our loving Father is looking out for our eternal well-being. Now, this, this peace almost seems crazy to the world. I mean, imagine being the Philippian jailer when Paul was in prison in Philippi a little bit earlier before this letter. You can read about that in Acts 16. He would have been used to people who are sitting around moaning and crying about how unfair life was and why they shouldn't be in this prison. And yet suddenly, as he walks past Paul's cell, he hears prayer and singing. I mean, this would have seemed quite bizarre to him, wouldn't it? Yet Paul was experiencing the peace of God in his heart. It didn't matter that he was in prison and he was probably going to die. He knew Jesus and the peace which comes with that. So let me ask you today, do you know this peace of God in your life? A peace which rises above your personal circumstances and looks expectantly to God and his help deep in your soul. Or are you seeking peace on your own terms? If you are, let me ask you, how is this working out for you? Is your life growing in joy, gentleness, or trust? Or do you find that you're disgruntled with the world and bitter and angry at it? When you're alone with your thoughts, do you have a peaceful quietness in your soul knowing that you are right with God? Or is there an inner turmoil as peace flees and you know that you are missing something? If that is your experience, then please search for God. Search for his peace in Jesus. And if you come to him genuinely looking for peace with him, God will answer you and your life will be changed and transformed forever. Now for those who are believers here, let me encourage you that the peace of God is unassailable. With your hearts guarded by Jesus, we can begin to grow in joy, gentleness, and trust. We can become people who are not swept along with the current of society that fluctuates between despondency and frustration as life never quite seems to work out. And this wonderful wonderful truth, though, calls for us to live out this reality. I'm going to think about how we do that in our third point. So we think about active hearts. 
So if we continue the analogy of our hearts as, as castles, then with Jesus dwelling in the hearts of his people, we have a champion defender. There is not a force, and he will not allow any force to overcome us in the long run, even if at times we do suffer in this life. So, so what does this, this mean for us? Should this make a difference in our life? And the answer, according to verse 8 and 9, is a resounding yes. Of course it should. The difference is now our lives are lived no longer to serve us, but rather to live to promote uh, our champion, Jesus, in our heart. And verse 8 shows how we do this. It's by thinking about things which are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. This is quite a list, isn't it? We don't really have time to delve into each one of them, but what Paul wants us to see is that as believers, how we, be, what we, how we live and what we think about matters. I think this just makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Proverbs 23 verse 7 tells us uh, how a man thinks, so he is. So what we think about, what we spend our time on, what we talk about, all of these affect who we are as people. And it doesn't just affect us sort of outwardly, but to the core, to the heart. And in this list, Paul is laying out things which will promote Jesus in our hearts, things which will cooperate with the work that he is doing in us and keep our attention on him. Now, Paul isn't being prescriptive here. You know, do this, don't do this, do this. Rather, he's giving us a, a, a guide. So does this thing that you are doing, does this thing that you're attending, does this thing that you're thinking about, does it promote truth, honor, justice, purity, or not? Is it worthy of praise and excellence? Does this thing promote Jesus in your heart? Now, I don't know about you, but I find this list quite confronting. If I was to put my life under a microscope to see how much it looks like this list, I'd be pretty keen for those results to not go public. So I wonder how you're doing. And what are we to do about this? You know, we, we, we need to grow in all these things, don't we? And how are we going to do that? Well, Paul sort of hints at it in verse 9, where we read, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul says, practice what we see in godly people and other godly people. And this means we're going to need to be surrounded by other godly people. And isn't it good that God has gathered us into little groups of godly people together and called it a church? And this is why coming to church and being involved in small groups is so important. Their purpose is to help us grow and develop our lives to better reflect God's truth, God's justice, God's loveliness, God's excellence, and all these things. And this is why having good Christian friends is also so important in encouraging us in our walk. Jesus hasn't just left us to figure these things out all by ourselves, but he's given us one another to help each other in promoting Christ in our hearts as we hear the preaching, pray with each other, and bear one another's burdens. So our first step in growing in these things is being committed to church and its people, to your church and its people. But this also calls for a radical heart discipline. You see, your church friends um, and other believers aren't going to always be with you. 
So what you do on Monday to Saturday matters. And you mentioned if we did all these things, all these good things on Sunday, but the exact opposite on the rest of the week. You, you know, we lived and thought about things which are false, dishonorable, unjust, uh, impure, ugly, pathetic, shameful. If we're living this in our lives, how can the peace of God dwell in our hearts? They're incompatible, aren't they? Our, our very consciences would rise up against us. So, so how are you going on this front? What, what fills your time and your thoughts? Are you maintaining the peace of God in your life and promoting Jesus as your champion and, and, and focusing your attentions on him? Or are you filling your hearts with rubbish? Does what you're watching on TV promote God's peace in your life or not? Does your use of social media or the internet meet the truth, purity, or excellence test? Do your hobbies bring you nearer to Jesus or further away? Now, we, we could go on a whole long list of these things, but I'm not going to do this. But let me encourage you, though, to think through your life in every aspect and think about whether it lives up to this call. And where it doesn't, then by God's strength, make changes. Now, the truth is that we're all going to have areas that we need to change and grow in this area, isn't it? We will all suffer with filling our hearts with rubbish and not Christ at times. But the blessing we have as Christians is that through the Holy Spirit working in us, we can begin to make changes. Where bit by bit, the rubbish we attempted to fill our hearts with can be thrown out and replaced with thoughts which elevate Christ in our hearts and lives. And do not be discouraged if this takes a while. In fact, this is a lifelong process. But we have the encouragement of this passage that as we commit our hearts to action in this area, we will experience the peace of God more and more in our hearts as we become more like our champion defender, Jesus. Well, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, a lot of things, and perhaps too much. So I'll finish with this. We, we have fragile hearts, which if left to themselves, would easily be overcome by the struggles and worries of life. Yet we are not alone. The God of peace has entered this world to bring peace to his children. A peace based on a brighter future and a brighter hope than anything this world has to offer. Rely on him. Trust him. Follow him. Serve him. And regardless of what life throws at you, you will know a peace from out of this world. You will know a peace in your heart from which only God can give to those whom he loves. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, Heavenly Father, we do praise your name. We thank you that you have not left us in turmoil and anger and violence, but Lord, you have broken into this world with peace, a peace that uh, passes all understanding, a peace which deals with our big problem of sin and promotes uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives of joy and gentleness and trusting. So Lord, we pray that we would, as believers, be encouraged by your word, we'd be challenged, but we would see that through your strength, through your power, we can begin to grow and become more like Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.